This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thomas, how was your Thanksgiving? It was very good. I wore my mask and it was calorically beneficial. (laughs) Terrific. You know, uh, we ask people not to get together as much as possible because of COVID-19. But you know, even historically, Thomas, sometimes when families get together, things such as violence occurs. And it's not easy to talk about But, you know, there's an organization called the Genesis Women's Shelter that does great work with domestic violence. You know, you're absolutely right. Sometimes when families get together, and actually, I've got to admit, I kind of didn't grow up in a domestic violent type situation, but it wasn't happy often when our family got together. And COVID only has just put the screws on this. So this is a very relevant interview that is going to empower women with resources and tools over the next 30 minutes that you can use if you find yourself in that kind of a situation. You're exactly right. We're going to be talking with Jan Langbein. She's the CEO of the Genesis Women's Shelter. So Jan, let's just start at the beginning. Define domestic violence. Domestic violence is a pattern of behaviors whose purpose is to have power and control over someone else. And the real problem with it is it works. It is a pattern of behavior that is intended to gain power and control over someone else, particularly an intimate partner in a relationship. So we're talking about not just like when we think of domestic violence that a person hit somebody. We're talking about taking a big step behind that of controlling that person. Yes, Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Some some abusive partners never hit the person that, that they want to control. It's done through a lot of different ways, but it all comes down to a choice to control somebody. The bad news is it's a choice. The good news is he can choose not to do it. Uh, that usually doesn't come without intervention. This isn't something that the victim can counsel away or try harder or cry less. Uh, it is a choice by someone who chooses to abuse somebody to gain power and control over every thought, every dollar, every choice she makes. For those of us who really don't understand the full scope of this, just how big of an issue is domestic violence? Well, it's a very big problem, number one. The problem is that uh, domestic violence impacts one out of every three women in the state of Texas and across the country. Uh, We refer to it as an equal opportunity epidemic because it knows no boundaries. It doesn't happen where we think, which is probably someone who looks differently than we do, or maybe it's myths say that, you know, maybe she's not educated or maybe she's poor. That's not the case. It happens in very affluent families and it happens in very poor families, very educated and uneducated families. The abuse is the same and the motivation for the abuse is the same. And that is for one person to have power over another. And they, uh, an abusive partner will use whatever tools work. 
If that is yelling and screaming and that works, great. If uh, that doesn't work anymore and it needs to ratchet up to a punch and a shove, then that's what happens. But it is not about the act itself. I think we as a society need to change the conversation from why doesn't she get out to uh, why does he do it? How can we move from uh, requiring the victim to fix it to holding accountable uh, abusive partners and ending this? We know that abuse will not stop until abusers stop abusing. So Genesis works very closely with the Dallas police. We provide services for the victim. We refer services for the abusive partner. But this, this behavior is a choice. It's not an illness. It is not because someone had too much to drink. It is more impactful than COVID uh, with regards to its uh, pervasiveness. And it impacts us not only in our homes, but on our streets. It impacts us in our work. The studies tell us that um, over $8 billion are lost every year in corporate America uh, because of lost productivity, absenteeism, turnover. It is a huge problem. It leads, it intersects with human trafficking. It intersects with mass shooting, uh, teen pregnancies and school dropouts and crime. Uh, so I, I feel so strongly that if we as a society could work together to help fix this, uh, we would fix so many things uh, throughout our throughout our community. So Jan, what solutions does Genesis Women's Shelter really bring to women and their children? And just how involved are you in this massive problem in North Texas? Genesis is a full-service response for women and children who are victims of domestic violence. It is a wraparound service so that whatever she needs, does she need to get out and stay out? We have uh, emergency shelter and long-term housing. Does she need access to a civil legal lawyer? We have that on site. Uh, We have school on site. We have daycare on site. We have counseling and advocacy on site. And so uh, the answer to that, what are we doing? It's as different as every client that comes in or calls us on the phone. Uh, I would suggest starting with our website, starting with a hotline call, but just understand that we stand ready to help victims, women and children who are victims of domestic violence in whatever they need. We don't want to be the roadblock uh, that keeps someone from living an abuse-free life. So we surround her with advocates and counseling and, uh, as I say, access to civil legal representation. But we also do the same for her children because we want to break that generational cycle of violence. Children who are, are raised in a violent home are getting on-the-job training to be tomorrow's abusers or to be tomorrow's victims. Now, a lot of families say, oh, I, we never argue in front of the kids. They know it. They know know what's going on, whether they do, whether they're young and don't understand the words or they just sense the oppressive air in the house. Mom has to keep one eye out for the abuser all the time, which means there's only one eye left for that child. There's a, a very definite impact on children who are raised in these violent homes. The, the abuse is all the same, Steve, but how people react to it is very different. And like if you and I are both in a car wreck, You may just be like annoyed because you have to get your car fixed, but it may have been the most scary thing in my entire life. So how we respond to a trauma is very, very different. And Genesis stands ready with services that are uh, very individualized. So I'm super proud of what we do. We have a school on site. We have a preschool on site. We have an early education center on site. Letting these children be safe 
in our facility, but also seven hours a day, they're getting hope and healing and clinical support during the day. Uh, the, the safe campus is amazing. And then uh, we have a non-residential office uh, in another location. Thank you, Jan. That is very informative. That website, again, if you know somebody or you yourself are in this situation, is genesisshelter.org. You know, Thomas, what a tremendous program helping with domestic violence. You know, there are other programs at our hospitals, especially through some of our emergency rooms. It's called the SANE program. And we're going to be talking with Kathy Glenn. She's with Texas Health Presbyterian, and she's going to describe the program, which really is the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiners here in North Texas. Next on the Human Side of Healthcare. This is the Human Side of Healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the Radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome back to the Human Side of Healthcare. You know, Thomas, we're talking about some very difficult but very important issues today. It's very real, and it's especially real during the holidays, and that's why we're doing this, to kind of kick off the holiday season. You know, Jan Langbein really gave us some good nuggets of information related to domestic violence and things we need to be aware of. And we're going to pivot now and go over to Texas Health Presbyterian Dallas and talk to Kathy Glenn. She is the Injury Prevention Trauma Outreach Coordinator, and we're going to talk about a very important program there. Yeah, the SANE program is such an important program, and it's helped men and women, and it really is one of the best programs that we have in the Metroplex, and it's offered at many of our hospitals, and we're delighted the way the hospitals help take care of the community. So, Kathy, welcome to the program, and just curious, do you see domestic violence patients in the emergency room? We know that we do. Sadly, Many of those victims do not tell us. We screen and we hope that they will tell us at that time, but unfortunately, most domestic violence victims do not tell us. Are there any telltale signs that kind of, for lack of a better term, jump off the page at you? To an experienced emergency room nurse, uh, yes, sometimes there will be signs that the person that they're taking care of, that you need to do a screening on them. But in domestic violence, these people look just like any person you'd meet on the street or in the PTA meeting or in the grocery store or at church. Now, if they have obvious injuries, a black eye, they have have an injury that might be suspicious. They say they fell down the stairs or they tripped over the dog. Sometimes it, it can be that, certainly. But Sometimes it can be domestic violence and the person in the bed is not wanting to tell us, particularly if the person that hurt them is sitting in the chair in the bed right next to them. You know, Kathy, when you look at the statistics, domestic violence is really an epidemic. How do we fix this? Talk to our listeners. Tell our listeners what we need to do to address these issues. That is a very good question and one that every person who wants to help domestic violence victims is asking that question themselves. 
domestic violence thrives in secrecy and in darkness. And if we can shine a light on that, so to speak, in the past, it was a shameful thing. People would not disclose that with even their own family members if they were in the middle of a violent relationship. And then people out in the world, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about domestic violence, thinking that what did the woman do to deserve it? Why does she stay? And when people are shamed for staying, you know, and that's why we're very conscious of that at the hospital, doing screenings that are respectful and, you know, non-shaming, because we want these people to be able to come to us when they're in trouble. And if we've made fun of them, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about like society is a large too, that if we make jokes about them, we shame the women that are in the middle of that, we're never going to get people to come forward because you're absolutely right. We know that a lot of it is unreported and that the statistics we have, one in three women, one in four men have been exposed to violence in a relationship in their lifetimes. And we know that that's a very low number that it's far more prevalent than we realize. But as long as people don't talk about it or they're ashamed to talk about it, and if people make them feel bad when they do come forward to talk about it, then we'll never get anywhere. We need honest discussions in churches and in hospitals and schools, you know, education as to this is what this is. Because a lot of people, well, like some of the victims that we get, they have no idea that they're in an abusive relationship particularly if they grew up in that atmosphere and as a child they saw their mother getting beaten up by their father. To them, that's normal. And so part of education is taking that at-risk population and teaching them this is not normal. You, you don't deserve to be called names. You don't deserve to be told that you can't have access to the family money you shouldn't be hit. You shouldn't be slapped or pushed or punched. And amazingly, a lot of people don't know that, or they think they deserve it and don't know how to stop it. In your experience, and you've had to deal with it, is there anything related to socioeconomic condition, or does domestic violence hit every aspect of society? That's a very good question. Yes, domestic violence crosses all socioeconomic gender, racial lines. It's in all areas. Now, there are groups that have higher risks, much higher risks than the rest of the population. Black women are far more likely to be in a domestic violence relationship than white women. I think it's twice as high. Native American women as well. And in our um, LGBTQ population, same-sex relationship, those people have high rates of domestic violence as well. And they are far less likely to come forward and make the outcry. Kathy, from a trend line perspective, if you hover up and look at time, are we making progress in this area or are we deteriorating? That is a really good question. I think during covid with people not being able to get out, that we've seen an increase in domestic violence reports and calls to domestic violence hotlines have been much higher than normal as well. I think people are at home and they really don't, all the things that people could do to kind of get away from each other 
like going to work, going to school, being able to go to the movie theater, go to the mall, that's all been really kind of curtailed. And so people are stuck at home with each other. And if there was violence already in the relationship, COVID has only made it worse. As you mentioned, domestic violence and even dating situations, unfortunately, sometimes uh, there's sexual abuse or rape. One thing that we know at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas, you have what's known as a sexual assault nurse examiner program, SANE. Can you kind of explain to our listeners, if someone comes to the emergency room and they've been raped, how do you do the handoff to the SANE program to have compassionate care for them? Oh, I'd love to answer that. Yes, um, Dallas Presbyterian is very fortunate to have one of the nicest SANE suites, that's what we call them, in our area. So when we get notification that a victim of rape is coming to our ER, when she comes into a treatment room, we make sure that um, he or she, it just isn't women who get raped, it's men as well. We make sure they're medically stable. That means if they have any injuries, we're going to address the injuries, you know, before we do any kind of examinations for sexual assault. But when they're medically cleared, the SANE nurse will come and take them to the SANE suite. And the nice thing about our uh, SANE suite is its entire design is revolved around trauma-informed care, meaning that the victim is at the center of this whole system that's designed for their comfort and their safety. And that SANE nurse will begin the exam in a very private area near the ER. If you don't know that that suite is there, you will walk by it never knowing that that's where that is being done. Uh, We have soft lighting in there, comfortable, cozy chairs and exam tables, and the staff are trained to follow the victim's lead. You know, a lot of listeners may not know this, but uh, police do not have to be involved for a victim to get a rape exam done. They can choose to have the exam or they can decline to have the exam. And what a lot of people don't know is that, you know, at the time of the assault, that person is very frightened that the perpetrator could, particularly if they've been robbed and they've They've been robbed of their identification and their house key, and they know that that perpetrator can come back to their house. Of course, they're going to be very hesitant to call the police and press charges at that time. And the nice thing about getting a sexual assault exam in Texas done is that you don't have to report that crime to the police. Uh, you can get your the evidence taken from you. You can get that kit done, and it can be saved for up to five years And if that person decides, you know, changes their mind in a year or so, they can call the police department and say, I'm ready now to press charges against the person that did this. So they can go collect that kit. Those kits are taken to Houston, by the way, and stored. And that kit will be sent up from Houston and it'll be opened and all the evidence will start to be processed. And hopefully they will be able to find the person that did it and the prosecution leading up to jail time can be done. Thank you both, Kathy and Jam, for this excellent information. And this is on our podcast, by the way. It's called The Human Side of Healthcare. If you missed part of this or need to share it with someone, just go to your favorite podcast player and search up today's show on November 29th. 
Now, when we come back, more hope for women looking to get into a career in medicine. That's next on the human side of healthcare. The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co host Thomas Miller. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted that you're with us today. And today we're going to pivot a little bit, but we want to talk about medicine and hospitals and physicians. But we're just delighted that we've got Vivian Demas with us. She's a medical doctor and she's the medical director of adult congenital heart disease at Medical City Children's Hospital. Dr. Demas, thank you for being with us. Thank you guys for having me. You know, the presidential election is over, and I'm not going to focus on the politics of it, but what we are going to focus on, that Kamala Harris will be the first female vice president in the history of this country. That's certainly inspirational for many girls. If you look at medicine, it's been somewhat the same way. Medicine for a very long time was male-dominated. In fact, the AMA lists many of the specialties in which men made up a significant portion of the working residents, and it was populated primarily in those surgical specialties. So that's kind of a prelude, but we wanted to ask you, Dr. Demas, what inspired you to become a physician? That goes back to, I think, my parents. I have two parents who are both physicians. They're both uh, immigrants from Greece. And my mother was one of the only physicians in her medical school in, in Greece at that time frame. And she raised me and my father raised me to believe that we could do whatever we wanted as long as we put our minds to it. I tried a lot of different things to find an interest in because I thought becoming a doctor would be just sort of the expectation when you grow up in a family like that. And I just found myself having a natural interest in it, and I, and I was naturally very good at it. And so as I progressed through college, I ended up committing to the idea, and then I got into medical school, and it was absolutely the right decision for me. But I think I was really inspired by my parents. You know, as you look at your career and as you have progressed through your career, what are some of the challenges you have faced being a female? Well, so I do, while I do adult congenital heart disease, I, I'm trained that I do pediatric cardio, interventional cardiology. So I'm an interventional cardiologist who also takes care of adults with congenital heart disease. So I, I'm a proceduralist. So as I was going through my medical school training, I was subjected, you go to all the different um, programs to do what's basically like a, a clinical rotation. So you spend some time on obstetrics and gynecology, psychiatry, internal medicine, pediatrics, all of the general core specialties. And then you can spend some time in the subspecialties. And I will say, as we were going through, I found myself very attracted towards the surgical subspecialties uh, and the interventional specialties, which really had very few women. There wasn't a lot of encouragement, honestly, for women to go into those subspecialties. And I can say even as far down as my uh, advanced training, my fellowship training, that there were comments about uh, women, you know, when they take the time to train them as interventional cardiologists, they have children and they quit and that there aren't really a lot of, you know, that they're a waste of the training time. And, and so, you know, that was, even though sometimes 
people didn't realize that, that we were internalizing all of that as the women. It never felt like there was a lot of willingness to train us because I think a lot of people think that we're going to go have kids and have families and then we're not, we're not going to do it anymore. And I think that that was one of the, the biggest hurdles I had to overcome was to show people that, yes, I'm a woman and yes, I have the dedication and I've got the gumption and I'm going to get this training and I'm going to go out and I'm going to have a successful career. That's also difficult when you don't have a lot of role models that are above you. There weren't that many women at the time who had gone out and accomplished all the things that I wanted to do. At the time I was married, I knew I wanted to have children, and there weren't a lot of married women with my husband's also a physician um, who were in two-physician relationships, who had kids, and who were doing, you know, an interventional or surgical subspecialty. So when you don't see that as a role model, it's really difficult to emulate. The flip side of that is that my mother actually chose a specialty because she thought it would give her more time to be home. And she chose pathology because she said, I want to have more out. I wanted to have more predictable hours. and I wanted to be home with you. But her heart wasn't really in it. And what she told me, which was the most amazing device as I was trying to make that decision to pursue this interventional training, was that it would be a struggle and that I would need help but that I should do what I love because eventually my kids will grow up and this will be my career and you want your kids to see you happy and you want to be happy and so that the struggle for the 10 to 12 years until the kids become much more independent would definitely be real but that in retrospect she regretted that because we got older and she still had years to work and she wasn't really happy with where she was in her career or the decisions that she made so she really enforced to me that I could do that and then with the right support which was my husband and my family, that I would be able to be successful pursuing an interventional fellowship and actually making a career of it while still trying to have that goal of having a family and achieve some sort of work-life balance. So to our listeners out there, especially the women, what in your viewpoint is the future for women in medicine? So I think that the future continues to be bright for women in medicine. You know, I think where the, the difficulty is that women still don't make up a very large percentage of the surgical or interventional subspecialties, despite the fact that most medical schools are at least 50%, if not sometimes leaning a little bit more towards females. So I, I think that while women are continuing to pursue it as a career, uh, they're not necessarily pursuing these surgical and interventional specialties with the additional training. And I think that some of that has to do with the lack of mentorship that we've had in the past. I will say it's continuing to increase. I can tell you personally from my experience, uh, the previous program that I was in, we had never trained any females. And in the tenure that I was there, we trained two. And both of them specifically said, we saw that you could do it. And so we knew that we could do it. And so I think as we continue to train women and empower women and continue to blaze these new trails and continue to support each other, I think that the, the future is very, very bright. I think that we all need to respect our home life. And I think COVID has taught a lot of people that what's really valuable and what it means to be able to be home. And so I think as long as we continue to push things forward and we continue to value that women bring a lot to the table, but we also want to have some sort of work-life balance, I think that we'll continue to increase those numbers. So I, I hope that if you're a 
a young woman and you're thinking about doing this, that you look at all of my, I would say my generation of physicians, there are a lot of women who have blazed these trails and we want to bring them all behind us. And so I'm always willing to talk to young women. I will have them shadow me. Um, I participate in a lot of women in medicine groups to mentor young women who are in training, and I think that did not exist when I was there. So it's, it's my hope that by continuing these efforts, we'll continue to bring women up in an environment where they feel that they can be successful and that we can make them successful. You know, you've listed some things that you're currently doing to help people, especially young people, as they consider coming into medicine. But if you kind of stand back and look at the broad picture of the future of women in medicine, how do you think you today are contributing to that? I think um, the training and mentoring young women is one part. Um, I've actually had women come and shadow me and maybe not choose to do what I want to do, but maybe choose a career in medicine when they were thinking that they maybe wanted to be a, a nurse practitioner or just be a, or be a nurse or, or have another um, career path. And so I think for me, continuing to support my high school mentoring program, continuing to support the medical students and all the trainees and continuing to be, you know, at the at our national meetings, continuing to support the women who have pursued pediatric cardiology and pediatric interventional cardiology and, and, and continuing to bolster them and give them opportunities. I think that's how I've contributed. I've, um, I teach a course for our trainees. I spend a lot of time with the women who attend that course. I'm the chairman this year. And so I do spend a lot of time trying to mentor and talk to the women. I always keep open lines of communication to continue to support them even after they finish their training and they're out um, and continue to support each other and continue to make our mark in our field, our respective fields going forward. How can a young lady who is interested in medicine find a mentor? So I think, I think that that is difficult. Um, there aren't interestingly very many formalized mentorship programs for subspecialty medicine. There are medical school groups, you know, in high schools where people who have an interest in medicine go forward. And I've been invited to participate in those and I like to participate in those. But a lot of it ends up being just random calls and, and contacts. And so I think most of the time it takes a real, the initiative of, of the high school or the college student to reach out and ask you know, is there any t way I could spend some time shadowing you? You know, I tell every parent of my, uh, that is, you know, a parent of a friend of my children at school, they all know that I take these people, I, neighbors know, I mean, I, you know, you do the best that you can to get these things out there, but there aren't really formalized ways to do this because it's, medicine is a, is a type of profession where you can't just take, you know, people in randomly, there's a whole process to get involved, to get into a hospital, you know, to get in and, and to be able to shadow people. And I actually think that you really can't understand what you do as a doctor until you see what someone does as a doctor. You know, I'll go out to every high school that's ever invited me that, uh, that has, there are women, there are female focused uh, pre-med groups, uh, interestingly, which definitely did not exist when I was coming up in the high school system. And so you know, we try to make ourselves available and go speak at those and, and then give them all of our contact information and try to be a resource for them as they have questions all along the way. And I do that with every medical student that comes across me, uh, comes across my path um, and, and all the way up to the trainees. It's just 
being accessible, I think, and really trying to keep the lines of communication open, even if it's just for a question or career advice or maybe just for them to complain. This is Dr. Vivian Demas. She's the medical director of adult congenial heart disease at Medical City Children's Hospital with her very inspiring story of how she made it from a medical family to the surgical suite and is at the top of a brilliant career. We're going to keep this conversation going when we come back on the human side of healthcare. Stay with us. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Let's continue our conversation now with Dr. Vivian Demas, whose bio includes being the Director of Interventional Cardiology at Children's Health. She serves as an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at UT Southwestern Medical Center and she specializes in minimally invasive treatments of heart failure and other complex heart conditions. She's board certified in adult congenial heart disease, a very inspiring trailblazer for women who are interested in getting into any level of medicine can look at her path and say, I can do this too. Mentors are very important to following a medical career path in any form, but especially here. And that's where we left off in our last segment and are going to resume by asking the question, if you're looking at medicine, when is the best time to start looking for a mentor? So I think I would break that up into two. Actually, there's probably several phases along the way where it becomes helpful. I think in high school, before you start college, if you think that you might have an interest in medicine, I think it's it would be nice to have someone to talk to that could be a mentor to you to make sure that you, if this is really what you want to do, that you're utilizing your time in college correctly to get into medical school because there's certainly an academic path that you need to take uh, to get into medical school on time. So I think part one in high school is just, is this the career that I think I want for myself? And if it is, what do I need to do to get into medical school? So I think that's part one. Part two is when you're actually in college and you're thinking about applying to medical school. Um, I think there are two things that are useful. One is trying to understand where you should go to medical school because there's are, there are pros and cons to that whole process. Um, you know, you should be thinking about is there a reason to take an in-state tuition where I will have little to no debt versus uh, a private institution where I might come out with a lot of debt and how does that look long term and how will how will that affect me in the future I think those conversations are really important uh, and then also potentially looking at where do I want to go from that medical school and are there any particular things or programs that they offer that I think might be of interest to me and then once you're in medical school I think that's when the real mentorship becomes uh, important in terms of a specific mentorship a mentorship that says hey I want to be a pediatric interventional cardiologist or I want to be a congenital heart surgeon and then identifying those people and having them help you and guide you all along the way with how do you select a program, how do you deal with the difficulties in a program, what can you expect, what are going to be challenges, how did we deal with challenges. You know, those are the things that um, are helpful. When I had, uh, for instance, I was pregnant um, as a fellow, which is in my in my training, and I was pregnant when I was out working and as intending, and we wear lead and we're in x-ray machines, and there are safe ways to go about doing that, and you have to take care of yourself. And when I had trainees coming through that were also women that were also pregnant, it was nice that they had a resource in me to 
to ask, you know, how should I be doing this? Should I be out of the lab? Should I be in the lab? Um, and getting some guidance from someone that wouldn't be judgmental but would actually be helpful. So I think that that mentorship process has so many different phases all along the way, and it still continues today. I still speak to the women who are 10 to 15 years ahead of me looking for guidance as I continue to hit new roadblocks in my career or want to, you know, change trajectories and do things differently. So I think it's a lifelong process. You know, Steve, I love the line, success leaves clues. You know, that's a good line. You know, Vivian, uh, as you've progressed so well in your medical career, what kind of clues have you seen or have you had a lot of resistance? Um, So I think this is interesting as well. You know, there are still men who I think don't think women are as good. I, and that might be a very that might be a very small percentage, but they sometimes tend to be the most vocal. Uh, they're not very supportive, and they can sometimes almost be problematic. What I have found, probably in the last decade for sure, and maybe even 12 to 15 years back, it seems that that tide is changing. I can tell you among the peers in my particular subspecialty that they have been nothing but welcoming and encouraging to us as women, and they support us and treat us wholeheartedly as equals. There will always be people who won't. There are, there are still people who say that we only get that speaking position or that research study because we were women and they needed women. So those those comments continue uh, even even into the current era. So I, it, I don't know that we've changed it completely, but it has been a very, very palpable shift in people becoming more accepting of women and seeing us more as partners and as equals. And, and I would say that the women that are coming behind me will see even more of that because we really are setting up those bonds and those relationships where men and women can work together and work together towards a common goal. In terms of the business aspects, I'm actually uh, in the process of getting my uh, MBA. So I'm a little bit into that business world. And I do see that there are a lot of women that are continuing to move up in the business world. They still are outnumbered by men. But I think you are seeing more and more women being promoted to positions of leadership. And uh, and, and I would say that's true at, at our hospital, definitely. And I think that that you know, as long as we continue seeing each other as equals and we continue to support each other and we, we see each other as valuable, I think we're always going to keep heading down the right track. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to get people who think there are always going to be people who don't think men are doing as good of a job because they say they're not compassionate. There's going to be men who say women don't do a good job. I don't think we're ever going to fix that. That chasm, I don't think, will ever be closed. But I do think that with education and with acceptance, we have really come a long way in medicine in terms of women and equality, at least from my perspective. We're still outnumbered. Uh, we still have more work to do. I wouldn't say that our work is done, but I would say that the slope is getting shallower, is getting less steep uh, in terms of the hills that we're climbing. I think it is getting better. It's not perfect, but we're getting there. Dr. Demas, it's been just fun to talk to you, to learn from you. And do you have any closing thoughts or comments for the women that are in the audience and the young ladies that may be thinking about getting into medicine? Any final nuggets of information? Yeah, so, you know, as a mother who has a daughter, I would tell them the same thing that I tell my daughter, which is you should do what you love and you shouldn't let anybody get in the way. 
and you should support, I, you know, when I would talk to the entering female classes in the medical school, I would say you should look around at all these women who are sitting at this table because these are going to be your colleagues and you should support each other. Um, you should be each other's safety net. And so when I talk to young women, I tell them that they need to support each other and they need to follow their dreams and that they should do whatever it is that they want to do and not let anyone tell them any different because there's always where there's where there's a will there really is always a way you just have to believe in yourself and you have to help each other great advice great advice you know thomas what a show today fascinating topics topics we needed to talk about and i hope our listeners really appreciated the candor and also really the leadership that these women have shown in their discussions with us today You know, I I look at this as a topic of hope. The message we've heard today is clear. There are resources for you and there is hope. And we trust that we have shined a light on that favorably. But then to shift to to Dr. Demas's brilliant career to say that medicine is probably still the most growing field out there and as everything is shifting right now, there are plenty of spaces for you in medicine if you are interested. No question about it. And I think that the future is bright, and we're very blessed. You know, Thomas, I know we only have a few seconds, and Thanksgiving is over. We're through the Thanksgiving weekend. Let's hope the repercussions of some of the family visits aren't going to be that we have a big surge over and above the high level we're already at. COVID-19 is out there. It's continuing to have community spread. And we've all got to do our part. Wear a mask, physical distance, wash our hands, get our flu shot. Hey, we're all in this together. we got to beat this virus. We don't know what's in the oven. And by that, we mean what has taken place over this past week of people that will be getting COVID. And I know there are a lot of people who just still don't want to have anything to do with all of these things that we are doing. And restaurants are packed and so many people buying airplane tickets right now. But, you know, the one thing that we've had interviews on this show, if you will just wear a mask, the science says the spread will fade. Absolutely. The statistics are there, and we've got to do our part. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your Thanksgiving weekend, the few hours that are left, and we will see you again here next week on the Human Side of Healthcare. 